Hey there, thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cothern. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. I wonder what you might think of, what comes to your mind when you hear the, the word rescue. I had a couple of things that came to my mind, and one of them was because I had sat next to a new friend of ours, Zach, who's a state trooper, and uh, I met him because uh, Donna is our connection there, and it's so good to see you. We've been praying for you, Donna. So glad you're here. And Zach is a really neat guy. Joy and I got to know him a bit. And Zach was telling us about an experience that many of you know about and had read about because it happened last year, an awful car wreck on 94, uh, just west of 23, when a car crossed a whole bunch of lanes and then ran into a school bus that was parked there because of engine trouble. And we knew about it a little more personally because of this church, because the tow truck driver that was at the rear of that bus when it was struck was killed, and he and his family lived right across the street from one of our church members. So it gave them an opportunity to love on that family and uh, try to pray for them and give them a little comfort, what little comfort they could offer at a time of great grief. Well, it turns out, Zach, who was describing this experience, said, well, I was the one who first came up on that scene because I was called to that. And he said, and the car was on fire at that point. And so I didn't know what else to do but just to break out that back window because there were three children who had not been strapped in with their seatbelts. They were very badly hurt. And they were in the back seat, trapped in a burning vehicle. Fortunately, thanks to a guy as brave as Zach, he was able to break that window and brought all three of those children to safety. An amazing rescue. When I think about that kind of rescue, I think that that's something as dramatic as Peter has in mind when he's starting to write to these people who are in desperate need of rescue themselves. They've been through a lot. He's writing to some people that we'll be looking at today. I'm thinking about some other rescues. We think about things now that we've seen southeastern Texas, who's been through some awful floods. I had a friend back in seminary who lived in Beaumont, and Beaumont's one of the hardest hits hardest hit areas in Texas. But you see these helicopters that come zipping in and people who have climbed to the highest possible levels as the waters rise, and then they finally get rescued out. Well, Simon Peter talked about a physical and spiritual rescue. He was rescued physically as we looked at the buildup to 1 Peter because we saw, first of all, his denial of Christ and his need to be rescued or forgiven by Christ because of the weight of guilt that he carried around with him. And then that second buildup, we talked about his commissioning. As Peter was in the boat, the other guys were fishing. Jesus is on the shore. They come ashore. Jesus forgives Peter and says, now you're going to be a shepherd. Shepherd my sheep. Feed my sheep. So then he's starting to write to these people in this letter that we know as 1 Peter. And he's writing to us about a joy in our salvation, something we just sang about. And we probably don't use the term saved as often as we used to in the early days when I was growing up in church. I think some people have thought that maybe saved has sort of gone out of style for some reason. Maybe it's because it requires too much explanation. 
but it's in the Bible. It's, it's a good word. As we think about, we have been rescued. We've been saved from something to something else. And so Peter's talking about a people who have been rescued from a life apart from God, walking around in darkness, aimless, hopeless, and they're dead in their sins. And yet they've been rescued from that into Jesus' light, become new creation in Him, walking into eternity in the presence of God. All that is going from something to something better. It's a rescue. So when we think about rescue, I almost like that word today because it connotes something for us that we can get our hands around. So we're saved from all that into something great. Well, who is Peter writing to in this first book of the first letter of Peter? He's writing to God's elect. We're going to look at what that means. Those who have been scattered, mostly because of persecution. And those that he refers to another thing that's very biblical, sprinkled with blood. And we think, well, that's kind of gross. But we need to find out what that means for him as well. So he's writing to God's elect. I have mentioned this several years ago, and I still really think that there's a good illustration that I put my mind around this whole concept. I did a little reading, a little light reading in Dr. Grudem's book this last week, and you start looking at a couple of different chapters where he really gets into predestination and free will. And let me tell you, I had a headache after reading 26 pages of really deep theology, but he really nails it. I mean, he really gets it right. And what I've come to realize is that predestination is a word that gets tossed out and sometimes it gets abused and then free will gets tossed about and you have some people that will try to swing a pendulum to one or the other and think that we have to find ourselves in a camp of either the predestinationists or the free will people. That's not the case. They're both in scripture for good reason. So here's the analogy that I found that I think is very useful. Let's say that there are two little holes just big enough or some good thick rope, and they're right there in the ceiling just above me. You can't see what's above those ropes. All you can see is the two ropes that are coming down through those holes, and they come down right here. Now, let's say that I want to grab hold of one of those ropes because I want to support myself. I need a good foundation. So I grab a hold of this rope on the right, and I jump up on it and grab it, and I just go thunk right down to the ground. And okay, well, that didn't work, but I noticed something that as I pulled down on that rope, guess what happened to the other rope? It went up. Aha. So maybe there's something up there that I can't see that's uh, in action here. So then I think, well, let me try the other side of the rope. And so I jump up on the left-hand side of the rope, and what happens again? Thunk. I clunk to the ground again. What do I need to do if I'm starting to put two and two together, and I think there's a pulley above that roof Firmly attached to a steel beam and the rope is going across that pulley. What do I need to do if I have to support myself? That's right. I need to grab both of them. And then I can cling securely to that. That's what I see as a simple but accurate depiction of what we have in the scriptures when it comes to predestination and free will. God, because he is so omniscient, knows everything... And it's a kind of knowing that's far deeper than we tend to think. He knew you before you were even born. That's how well he knows you. So because of that, he knows who is going to accept. That's kind of an oversimplification in itself. But because God is totally love, he's not going to force himself on anybody. That wouldn't be love. You can't force somebody to love you back. So he gives us free will and somehow intention, a healthy tension, there's predestination on one hand because God foreknew 
who his elect were going to be, and yet there's free will in the process. Can I totally understand it? Not even close. But I accept it because I'm a recipient of that wonderful grace, and free will was involved in that. We talked about it. Steve did an excellent job in our adult growth encounter just before we came in here, talking about the fact that it's nothing we do. It's not works-oriented. We can't earn God's salvation. It's all about grace. So all we have to do is just recognize the state we're in and allow God to pour that grace over us, and that's how we get rescued. That's how we get saved. So two ropes and a pulley, keep that in your mind as you think about predestination versus free will, and know that they both exist, and they're both in Scripture for good reason. The way Simon Peter uses this term in his letter is that those who have accepted God's grace are his elect. So when he refers to that, think of saved believers, people who have been rescued from darkness to light. They're the people who are trusting God for their salvation. Now, the elect shouldn't become the elite. That's what can happen if we start aiming too heavily to the predestination side of the fence because we think, well, we kind of have it all together. And we are the elect after all. And because of that, we're going to look down our bony noses at all those other people out there because they are those sinners there. Fortunately, we're saved and therefore we're no longer sinful. And if you really follow the history of the church, you can see some waves of times when people have gotten into that mode and it doesn't end well for them. Jesus, in fact, really came down hard for people who had thought that they knew better than others, those Pharisees and the Sadducees who were so religious, and yet they didn't have any compassion for other people. So we need not think of the elect as being the elite. We need to be humble about recognizing that we're solely saved by grace and that we're all in the same boat. And so through our faith, we get to put our trust in Jesus. So he's also writing, not just to the elect, but to the scattered There was a bit of a scattering going on in what we would now call northern Turkey. They would refer to it perhaps as Asia Minor in the New Testament. So there were some people that were going around into other areas, and that meant that that place where they were staying is currently not their hometown. And they feel a little bit disjunct. They feel like uh, their equilibrium has been disrupted a little bit. Like somebody's pulled the rug out from underneath them, and they feel like this is not really our home, and we're trying to do the best we can, but... Where is this wonderful feeling of solidarity and and that solid foundation that we once felt when we were back home where we belonged? Some of you know what that feels like to be displaced. And you're living in a different place for a while and it just doesn't feel like home yet. That's what these people were like. There are people who are scattered. We have people who used to be very active in our own local expression of the body of Christ. And some of them live as far away as Kenya, Africa. Some are in Hawaii now, the Dills. Uh, We have people scattered all over the place. We have a few that moved to Florida. I don't know why you'd want to go down there, but whatever. And so they're scattered, and yet they're still a part of the body of Christ. And this is a local expression. uh, I like the reference that Steve made about the colonies. When the British colonies would be established, they would be established to to show the glory of that wonderful British rule that was there, or in the Roman empire. They would have these colonies out at the farthest outposts. Why? To reflect the glory of the great Roman ideal. Same thing though, in a pure sense, is true with the kingdom of God. These local visible bodies called the church, churches like ours, are local expressions. They're colonies so that we're reflecting the glory of God to the people around us in our locale. It's a visible church. So we think about the church universal, but it's made up of a whole bunch of little visible, not invisible, visible churches just like this one. 
and you multiply this by thousands of people just like us, think about the numbers of people who can be influenced by people like us because of being salt and light where we are. You're a part of that. And you have an influence on everybody you come in contact through the week. So that's who he's writing to, which affects us today, fortunately. He says, 1 Peter 1.1, To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's that scattered group of people who are the elect, those who have trusted Christ. So he's writing to the elect, they've been scattered, and they've been sprinkled with Christ's blood. He mentioned that. What is he talking about with that? Let's back up right over here to Exodus. That was the rewind. Some of the, the old tapes that you used to be able to listen to, you used to be able to do that. You can't get that with CDs anymore like that. It's, it doesn't have the same effect. But we come all the way back to Exodus, and we start to see some things that gives us a clue about that. Look at this verse. Who have been chosen, these people who have been scattered, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, that's that pulley above the two ropes, of the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. So you go back to Exodus 24. Moses is leading the people of Israel out away from bondage in Egypt. They camp out at Mount Sinai. He puts up these 12 standing stones. There are how many tribes in Israel? 12. One to represent each tribe. He gets representatives from these tribes to start having a worship service to commit what God is revealing to them about this wonderful word that he's bringing down from Mount Sinai. And so he's got these commandments that God brings out of his love for his people. He's giving them boundaries because of his love, and they're going to commit to this covenant. How does he do that? Well, they gave some animal sacrifices, because we learned that there's life in the blood. That starts way back early, even in the very first couple of people on the face of the planet, where blood becomes very important in their worship practices because it represents life. And so they kill these bulls, and he put some of the blood in some bowls, and then they sprinkled or poured some of the other blood onto these 12 standing stones, the altars. Then, after he had read the commandments to the people, the people all responded by saying, we will obey the commands of God and of Moses. And he says, okay, good. Now we're going to ratify that agreement. We're going to put the seal on that. We're going to show that they mean business by that. How did he do that? He sprinkled some of that blood that was in the bowls onto the people themselves. Now, do we have to do that today? Man, I hope not. Ew, that would be so gross. Fortunately for us, Jesus Christ became the ultimate blood sacrifice. We don't have to anymore because he fulfilled everything in the Old Testament. So now it becomes symbolic. And when we have communion... We're looking back at what he did for us through the breaking of his body for us, through the bread and the drinking of that wine representative of his blood, which was shed for the remission of sins. That's why those who are sprinkled with the blood are recipients of this covenant relationship with God. And they say, yes, we're the receivers of God's grace, which has been poured out to us. That's who Jesus Christ is to them. And that's who Peter is writing to them about. They're sprinkled by the blood, so to speak. That's his way of saying you're covered by the blood of Jesus. Now, fast forward to the upper room so that we can see this wonderful arc through the theme of the blood. And so way back here in Exodus, we got this with Moses several hundred years before Jesus comes on the scene. Then Jesus is here. He's in an upper room. He starts to institute something called the Lord's Supper. And he says, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant. That's exactly what Moses had done. 
confirmation of the covenant. It confirms the covenant between God and His people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Aren't we grateful, those of us who have been sprinkled by the blood, that it covers us? And those who have been covered by the blood have been washed as white as snow. I don't know if you've ever tried to get blood out of a white uh, tablecloth. It's difficult. There's a miracle that takes place because those who are washed by the blood actually become as pure as snow. And he just refers to that as a miracle of what he does. Okay, let's look further on in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. Those who are under the blood have an inheritance that will not perish, spoil, or fade. That's something that Peter starts to write about because it's the reason for our joyful expectation that we all have. It's that inheritance. Uh, my mom, I told you about my mom's uh, inheritance that my sister and I went through her things when she passed away several years ago. And she had a ton of jewelry. I mean, we had drawers and drawers of jewelry. And so we dumped all the stuff that we could tell might have some value into a big uh, paper bag, like a grocery bag. And we took it down to a gold dealer in Phoenix because she had left on her Rolodex a name of a gold dealer, hoping that just maybe some of that might actually be worth something. But we knew because she had grown up with a dad who'd grown up in the Depression, probably they were not going to be terribly valuable. But the guy smiled at us and said, I'm happy to go through these things. I loved your mom. She was such a good customer and she's such a sweet lady. So he would start setting things aside and the pile grew from one side of the table to the other. And we kept seeing it going over there and we kept thinking, yeah, it, we got nothing. <laughs> this, is not, this is not worth anything at all. And then he pulls out this little tiny necklace with a little tiny nugget at the bottom of it. And he says, here it is. This is worth more than that whole pile right over here because it was pure gold. And he weighed it, he checked it, he gave us the amount on a piece of paper. My sister and I, our mouths dropped open and we realized, oh my goodness, this is really valuable. So there are certain things that Peter is saying, it's not going to decay, it's not going to tarnish like fool's gold. Real gold will keep its sheen for years and years and years. And he says, this inheritance is so much better than any physical earthly inheritance that you can, can look forward to. And it's being kept in heaven for you. This kind of inheritance is being kept by the person who made it possible in the first place. It's being kept in the safest place possible. And it's something we get to a joyful expectation because we're looking forward to that. My mom, who also said to my sister and me late in her life, after she'd had a couple of uh, experiences, so she was starting to lose a few of her memories. It wasn't real dimension. It wasn't Alzheimer's, but she would just have time, a hard time coming up with the right word sometimes toward the end of her life. And she would say to my sister and me, she'd say, Kathy, I can't find it, but keep your eyes out for the gold. And Kathy would say, okay, mom. And she'd pat her hand and she told me, you know, keep your eyes out for the gold. Like we were thinking, yeah, she just can't remember stuff. And she thought maybe she'd hidden some gold somewhere or something. But we just kind of let her go with it. We said, okay, mom, don't worry about it. It's cool. Because I knew we were going to go through her estate with a fine-tooth comb anyway. But because she had said that several times, when she did finally pass away and go to heaven, and then my sister and I were going through all of her items, we got kind of meticulous. <laughs> and so we would pull out a drawer and look underneath it. Because sometimes people will tape an envelope under a drawer. We actually pulled some file cabinets away from the wall, just in case there was something tucked back there. But no gold. No gold. 
And then one day I went to the bank. And I went because she had a safety deposit box that she had leased so that I could get her uh, will and testament, the last will and testament, the official copy, which we needed so we could take it to the lawyer who had done her estate planning so that my sister and I could dispose of her earthly goods, which was mostly her house. Well, I got into the little tiny room. If you've been to the bank, you know what it's like. They leave you completely alone so that you're private. And I sat down with this long, narrow metal box. Didn't look big enough to contain a lot of stuff. But I got the key. I opened it up. And there right on the top was the life insurance policy and her last will and testament. That's what I needed. But there was something underneath that. And I lifted those papers out. And there was a, a lunch sack, paper sack, real crunchy and crispy with a rubber band around it, around something kind of hard. And the rubber band was so old that when I started trying to take the rubber band off, it just broke into several chunky little pieces. That's how old and brittle it was. So then I carefully unwrapped that little sandwich bag, and I looked inside there, and there was a baggie. And inside that baggie were two, two rolls of coins. And I'm thinking, oh, that's sweet. She must have kept some quarters with every different state for her grandkids or something like that. And I opened up those two stacks of coins. And guess what they were? Gold coins. Two really thick stacks of gold coins. So my sister and I took them back to that man who had showed us that wonderful little necklace. And I said, uh, could you evaluate something for us and tell me if this is genuine or not? Now, this is a guy who sees gold every day of his life, and even he got eyes that went like saucers. He took one look at it, and he went, oh, my. And he started counting them out, and my sister and I are looking at each other going, she wasn't lying. She said, keep your eyes out for the gold. There really was gold. He said, your mom bought these back when the price of gold was this high. I mean, it was just so cheap to buy gold back then. It must have been over 40 years earlier when she bought that. And so he went back into his room. He came back with a little piece of paper and he wrote on it and he slid it up in front of my sister and I and said, so this is what I'm willing to give you today based on the current value of this gold. Oh my goodness. It gave us enough money that we could do a lot of work on mom's house so that we could put it on the market, so that it would really sell quickly and sell for its full value. And God helped provide for us that way. But keep your eyes out for the gold. Peter says, multiply that by a billion, and you've got an inheritance that we're looking forward. Keep your eyes out for that time when Jesus comes back again, and he is coming. It'll be like a thief in the night. We won't expect it. For those who are sprinkled by the blood, for those who have placed their trust in God, it's going to be a joyful, wonderful day, because then we get to inherit all that that he promises us. John 14, he was talking about that to his followers. I mentioned that at Jim's memorial service. He was saying, hey, if it were not so that God is preparing a place for you, that there are plenty of rooms, I would have told you. But he is. God is preparing a place for you, all of you who are sprinkled by the blood, that where I am, you can be also. He's coming back to get us someday, and we'll have the full inheritance. It's going to be so much more valuable than any gold we can amass on earth. Interesting. If you were to do a word search, you just go into BibleGateway.com or any of those online free resources for the Bible and type in inheritance. See what you come up with. There are several dozen passages, especially in the Old Testament, that talk about inheritance. Almost every time, it's a vast majority of those that there's a place or property involved in that. 
They were always looking for a place where God would inhabit and the people would come and be near Him. For us as believers, that place is going to be with Him after He's consummated His plan. Heaven coming to earth, He's going to renew everything exactly right. God's presence is what makes it valuable, but there's a place. When Jesus says, I'm going there to prepare a place for you, He's thinking about that inheritance. Our inheritance is the place where God is, and we have that to look forward to. And then... Ready to be revealed in the last time, he says in verse 5. What does he mean by that? This inheritance, this plan that's going to be revealed in the last time. What What does he mean by that? Some of you remember in 2009 when I and my friend Al Firestone put on that little play called Boulder Faith out in Tecumseh. It was a musical based on the life of Simon Peter. And we did something because our director wanted to do it. At the end of that first performance, we did something that apparently we're finding out now way back in the Greek drama and tragedies and comedies that they would do, even in Peter's day, it was kind of a a fairly standard practice, which is that after the first performance, the writer, the author of the play would actually come on stage and answer questions or take a bow. So we did that after the first performance. We came on stage and sat down. You know what it means when the author steps on stage? It means the play is over. And that's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, the play is over when the, when the author steps on stage, and that's going to happen when Christ returns to get his chosen. It's something so overwhelming, C.S. Lewis says, that it will, be, it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. And check this out. That'll not be the time for choosing. It'll be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realized it before or not. That can either strike terror into your heart right now or joy. Because if you haven't chosen, today's the day of salvation. In fact, C.S. Lewis goes on in that quote from a particular book that I love, and he says, basically, today is the day when you can make that choice so that you don't have to have that terror strike you on that day. And then Peter wraps up. He's saying in this third little section here, this inheritance is the reason for our soul deep joy. That's my term for it based on his meaning. Even though you might suffer, you can still way down under the surface, even though we're going through such grief, you can still have a sense of joy because there's that joyful expectation for an inheritance that people who aren't sprinkled by the blood don't have. This suffering It's like a refinement by fire proves the authenticity of your faith, just like gold is refined. I took a jewelry class. I needed an easy A my last year of college, so I took a jewelry making class. And we did some things. I didn't do it with gold because I couldn't afford the materials, but I did something with silver. And we would refine some of that silver and watch the dross rise to the top, and it would get bubbly, and it was real black and yucky. And you get that dross off of there until finally it gets hot enough and pure enough that it becomes shiny and just as still as it can be. And you can see the maker's reflection in the silver. And I think Peter may have had that in mind about this refining, being refined like a fire, that our sufferings refine us until they prove the authenticity of your faith. A couple of pieces of that jewelry that my mom had in our inheritance, my sisters and me, had authenticity certificates associated with them. Some of you husbands that might have gone to Jared or Zales or wherever you got your wife's ring instead of going down to the local pawn shop, 
they would give you a certificate of authenticity so that if anybody wanted to say, no, this is the real deal. It's this kind of diamond. It's been rated. This is the number of carats. This is the purity, all that stuff. It's on the certificate so that it shows the value. And he says, your suffering that you're going through right now is helping to give you a certificate of authenticity, proving the value of your faith. Doug Dillard is a good friend of my family's. And he has been demonstrating the authenticity of his faith in just this last week. A week ago Saturday, a week from yesterday, I read a post that he gave. He's in his 90s now. This guy has had such wonderful faculties that God gave him. Doug has led an incredible life. Uh, he worked as the special projects director and vice president for Campus Crusade for Christ for several years and led them in some unprecedented historic movements that just spread the gospel around the world. And then he did some fundraising campaigns that helped them raise enough money to get more staff and spread them out into colleges and universities. When he was done with that role, he went and helped do an awful lot for the Radio and Television Commission in Fort Worth, Texas, where they were putting out Christian uh, materials for people. An incredible guy, an incredibly humble guy too. He actually went to college with my mother. And they were good friends, and so he stayed in touch with all of us. We had Doug come out and preach for my church when I was in Adrian one time. And we, we were a little podunk church with 100 people. And Doug, who has led this amazing life, comes out and he says, Oh, I'm happy to do that. And he comes out and preaches for us. I mean, he was that kind of guy. He was approachable. But Doug said in his post, Well, my doctor gave me my graduation invitation today. I have inoperable cancer. He said, but my family has rallied around my decisions. I'm contacting hospice. I'm making my plans. We're moving my wife into the memory wing of the assisted care facility because she's going to need additional help when I'm gone because she's losing her memory. She said, the family has rallied around me and they support my decisions. My church family has been amazing. And he said, I've lived an amazing life and I'm ready to go home. He was proving the authenticity of his faith, because he has the joyful expectation that what Peter is writing about is absolutely true, and he knows it from the bottom of his heart. Doug's going to be home. He's going to meet Jim one of these days, probably sooner rather than later, because he said, I've only got weeks, maybe months to live, but I'm ready. And then Peter says, this eternal hope is available to those who have not seen Jesus yet. Peter had walked with Jesus. He'd been forgiven by Jesus. He had touched Jesus. But not everybody had. And he's writing similarly to what happened with Thomas when Thomas needed to see for himself. And Jesus said, go ahead, touch my hands, touch my side. It's me. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And that's exactly what Peter is writing to these people as well. And he also says, this eternal hope is based on the fact that their souls have been rescued. We've been saved. Those of us who are sprinkled by the blood, who've placed our faith in Christ, are the elect, and we've been rescued. We don't have to fear that day of judgment. When it comes, it's going to be a joy-filled time. We're going to be so elated. We're not going to have to worry about that horror. He says, you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Anything about your English people out there that you can see which tense the first part of that sentence is in? It's present tense. Interesting that he says, you are right now, even those of you who are suffering, you right now are receiving, present tense, the result of your faith, the salvation of your souls, because you're starting to get your inheritance now 
and then you'll receive it fully on the day when he comes again. We don't have to wait for a pie in the sky by and by. We get it now. And every time we get a glimpse of that, he gives us just a little more of a little glimpse of what we get to look forward to. My sister and I used to love going up to see my grandparents in Sedona, Arizona, because we lived in Phoenix. It was a two and a half hour drive. Uh, my dad was helping start a new church up there in Sedona. And so we would go up almost every weekend. And when my sister and I would see the red hills around Sedona, we would say, there's oh, grandmommy's mountains, granddaddy's mountains. We're almost home. We're almost there. It's like every time we see the church act like the church should act, God gives us little glimpses and we go, ooh, ooh, that's a glimpse of what we get to look forward to. One good example was just this past week when somebody went missing. It was an elderly person. She was the mom of somebody that several of our church members know quite well. And it was an amazing post. I loved it to see how people rallied around that. So many people dove into action because that person mattered. Their life was valuable to these folks. And a lot of those folks were believers, church people. And the church becomes visible when we act that way toward one another. And every time something like that happens, especially when there's such a wonderful outcome because she was found, thank the Lord. Every time the church behaves like the church should that way, we become a visible expression. Those colonies that are out there, Steve, to use your term again, as you had mentioned, we are giving the expression of God's glory to a watching world wherever we happen to be. We're shining his light out there, and it got shown really brightly this last week. Glimpses of home. And then, almost like Peter is saying, oh, wait, there's one more thing I need to put. I need to wrap this up. He says, I'm going to put a little P.S. Now, he doesn't say that in his letter, but it's like that if you look at the, the way it's written. The last couple of verses in that first chapter of 1 Peter, it's like he says, oh, and P.S., little postscript. This joyful hope based on your eternal inheritance that you're looking forward to and that you're experiencing partially now is a fulfillment of the prophet's words about the Messiah who suffered and yet was glorified. In other words, he's starting this whole process like the elders talked about in 2 Peter. Remember, he does that a lot. He's saying, I'm bringing back to your memory something you knew ahead of time. Remember that? Remember how many times we've told you that? Everything Jesus did fulfills everything that was promised in the Old Testament. And you get to look forward to being with him forever. I'm looking forward to it. If you haven't made a step of faith to look forward to it, oh, wow. Because I love God so much and I love his people, I want you to be a part of that church. I want you to take that step of faith and to say, God, I need that. I want that. I want to be sprinkled by the blood. Please come into my life as well and help surround me with the people to help me walk on that journey. I want you to do that. Not because we're trying to save you from hell, though that is an outcome, but because the love that is expressed through Christ, through God's heart, becomes a motive to say, I want to be around somebody that loves me that much. It's God's love that draws people to himself. And I want you to be drawn into his presence as well. Let's pray together. Father, there's so much about this first chapter that gets us thinking about your heart, which is expressed. And we see so much evidence that Peter has in mind, that same Jesus that forgave him and gave him a new commissioning to shepherd the people of God. Thank you that he was transformed from somebody who was motivated perhaps by pride or wanting to get ahead or wanting to please Jesus, being a people pleaser, to just somebody who wants to share the good news that he's bubbling over with, that he can't contain any longer because your love is that great 
And I'm thankful that you've given these words to us because of Simon Peter, a firsthand example of what happens when we come in contact with Jesus Christ. I pray that if there's anybody here today who needs to take that step, they will do so and that they will be able to pray, Lord, save me, rescue me from my sins because I recognize that you're the only one who can. Come into my heart, be the Lord of my life, guide me in the steps that you have guided all these other believers worldwide because I want to be a part of this expression of faith through the church, this agency of grace that you've established so that I too can help shine your light to other people. And if there's somebody here who's made that, I pray today, Father, that you would just confirm that through your Holy Spirit, that they would share that good news with others. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.